0: Nearly forgot about this book tonight, Micah. Uh, in the planning schedule, wrote it, wrote it all down. We made a few arrangements, and then I thought this week would be Nahum. And just before I started preparing for Nahum, I realized, let me just double check. I was like, oh, there's a whole book we would have skipped. So Nahum got pushed uh, one uh, out and merged with uh, Habakkuk, which will be next week. Um, and uh, so you'll get, a, again, a double header next week. But we're going to look at these seven chapters Um, in in Micah today. And uh, I'm not going to play the Bible Project video because this is another reason why tonight might be very interesting is that it was a short day, a short week uh, for me. I for some reason got really sick Wednesday night, like the flu has kind of been going through our home. That's why nobody except Liam and myself here tonight. And so I was in bed for three days solid, Mm. Uh, Thursday, Friday, Saturday I really just only surfaced this morning for my first meeting at 10 o'clock and uh, but I had lots of time to sort of marinate in Micah like I could just read it and have it read to me and read commentaries but I tell you, even though I had so much time to read and think upon and ponder and marinate, it just felt like Micah didn't wanna be preached, you know? So two examples, like the one was we literally forgot Micah and the second one is that I gave so much time to Micah and I just felt like getting a sermon out of this book was like blood out of a stone, okay? So here we go, Are you guys ready for Micah? Yeah. All right. Okay, so you can just put that picture up there. It's the white one. We don't want to watch the video. But this is the Bible Project's you know, summary of it. Okay, and I'm glad you guys can't read anything. It's so small. It looks very complicated and busy and so on. But uh, um, you know, if, if at the end of this, there's some, still some time left, I might show you Bible Project's summary of it. But I'm going to give you mine. And I want us to turn to Micah chapter 6, verse 8. This is the uh, classic fridge magnet verse. So every sort of Old Testament prophet kind of makes its way into a Christian home through fridge magnet verses, okay? Verses that, that we actually understand sometimes, hey? Verses that kind of make sense, verses that are sort of less erring on the judgment and more on, on the kindness and the mercy of God. And Micah 6 is no different, all right? Micah 6 verse 8. If you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to follow along with me. There's only seven chapters, so once you've found Micah, it's not going to be difficult to find all the other verses we'll be reading together. Uh, And I've asked Corina to try her very best to keep up with my references, but I'm going to take you through a journey, but we're going to first look at chapter 6, verse 8, and then we'll probably find ourselves rewinding back a little bit before we fast forward and end with the final verse in chapter 7. So Micah chapter 6, verse 8, says this, He has told you Oh man, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to love kindness. Other translations use the word mercy. To do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. I'm pretty sure that if you've been a Christian for a while, you would have heard this verse. And if you're a recent Christian, you will hear this verses, or this particular verse, probably quoted at least once or twice a year in your walk with Jesus. And so, this is a this is what I want to sort of kick this message off uh, with. But before I start talking, let me just quickly pray, and then you know I'll talk to God, and then I'll talk to you. How about that? So Lord, I, I thank you for the prophet Micah, and for what he has brought. Uh, to us through these scriptures. And I ask, Holy Spirit, that you'd help me to, to uh, teach and to preach and to do this book justice. What you, Holy Spirit, want to say to us today through what you said to him in his day, Lord, I ask that it would come through, that we would be hearers and then ultimately doers of your word. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Maybe you can put that white slide back up again. This is, uh, this is just telling us who Micah is, Micah, um, in chapter 1, you'll see, um, he tells us where he's from. And, uh, you know, he said uh, he lived in a little town called Moresheth. Um, He was in the southern part of the kingdom. At that stage, uh, the the southern uh, part of Israel, the northern part of Israel, was divided. The northern part was called Israel. The southern part was called Judah. The capital of the northern part was Samaria. The capital of the southern part was Jerusalem. And, uh, and Micah, much like Amos, came from the southern part, but he actually spoke to both sides, to the whole north and south kingdom, to both of those cities. So in verse 1, you'll see at the end there, it says uh, um, uh, concerning Samaria and Jerusalem, so the north, northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And interestingly enough, he is a contemporary of Isaiah, so we're rewinding back in time a little bit. Okay, Assyria has not taken the northern kingdom yet, and Babylon has not invaded the southern kingdom yet. So no exile has taken place yet, but Micah is actually saying, it is coming, and he gives them the reasons why. And that's why I wanted to look at chapter 6, uh, verse 8. So you can go back to that verse if you want to, um, because he ends off by saying, I want you to walk humbly with God, because this is what God requires of you and I think that that the last line of that verse is what needs to happen first if you want to do the first two things that the Lord requires which is the doing justice and the loving mercy or kindness so walking humbly with God if you think about it that's the very thing that was lost in Eden walking humbly with the Lord if you if you rewind back right to the beginning of Genesis this is what God did with his creation He walked with them, it says, with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. He walked with his creation. And so to walk humbly with your God, in many ways, is the very thing that you and I were created for. And this is what God is requiring of them, and and, clearly it wasn't happening. Because walking humbly with God, I believe, results in us doing justice. If you walk with your God, you will do justice. And what is justice is the question we have to ask ourselves. Well, it's not just a set of bullet points. You know, someone tell me what justice is. A, B, C, D, E, and F. Okay, great. Let me do justice. Because actually, justice, first of all, in the Scriptures, is rooted in the character of God. God is just. If you want to do justice, what do you have to do? You have to walk with God. That's why walking humbly with God will result in doing justice. So we can, uh, we can probably say, therefore, that you know, a failure to walk with God would probably result in injustice. <laughs> a theologian called Harriman uh, Bavink said this about justice, that the justice of God is both retributive and reparative. Okay? So when we think of justice, we might just think of the hammer coming down. Okay? But justice is so much more, of course. Yes, it is retributive. It does... You know, call the wicked to account when they oppress others, when they hurt others. But it's also reparative; it's restorative. And actually, the interesting thing is is that in the scripture, the grand narrative of scripture, the repairing and the restoring of God is more prominent than the retributing, than 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 bringing judgment upon wickedness. That's actually, if you if you read the, you know the scriptures cover to cover, that will be the taste in your mouth, the primary one. Because God is bent towards the poor. He is bent towards the needy, towards the orphan, towards the widow, towards the sojourner. This is what this is, this is who God looks out for. And in that bent towards the poor, towards the broken, the lonely, the stricken, the downtrodden, in his bent towards them, he does bring justice. And, and actually calls to account the wicked, who oppress the poor, who steal from the, 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 the broken, who, who breaks them, who hurts them. Can you understand how it works? It's because his he, bent is towards loving those that are low, he comes after those who take advantage of the low. That's how, I think that's how those scales are tipped, if, if I want to listen to the theologian Herman Bevink. So it tells us to do justice. Walking humbly with the Lord results in doing justice. In other words, justice is a verb. Justice is something that needs feet. It's not just a nice idea. can't just sit in a room and talk about justice. No justice will happen. We might describe justice, but justice needs to be done. So that's the first one. Walking humbly requires us to do justice. Also to love kindness or to love mercy, as some translations say. Now there's a difference between grace and mercy. Sometimes we just want to throw them in the same, you know, it's easy to pray and to use all the kind words. So sometimes we throw them in the same sentence. But they actually mean two very different things. Grace is, is, is getting what you don't deserve. So, you know, it's buying Mike a gift on a day that's not his birthday. Yeah? Yeah. Mike's giving some people a little eye. One in particular. Look, I was trying to help her out there. Okay. Um, that's grace. Grace is, is giving someone what they don't deserve. What is mercy? Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. Okay, so to show mercy is to, to not give someone what they do deserve um, or it's withholding what is within your power to give. And that's, 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 that's where mercy actually becomes in. Because right now it sounds like, okay, I have the power and maybe the justification, the right to punish you, but I'm going to not punish you, therefore I've you been given you mercy. But if you think about the description of withholding what is within your power to give, it makes sense that sometimes mercy ministry can, can mean loving the poor. Because perhaps mercy ministry is giving what is in your power to withhold. Does it make sense? To show mercy might also be giving what is in your power to withhold. So yeah, grace is buying him a gift that is not on his birthday. But mercy is also giving him a gift when when it's not his birthday. Because I can. (laughs) It's almost like I'm describing the same thing but from a different angle. And so that's why mercy is maybe a bit like justice you know that's why social justice is that very thing it's actually giving to people what is in your power to withhold you can turn a blind eye to injustice you have the power to withhold it but you show mercy by saying i'm not going to stare at that injustice any longer i'm going to do something about it can you understand so there's there's two sides to this mercy coin and it's worth us marinating it, thinking about it a little bit and the reason why i want to look at these three these three things um, it's because this is the very thing that they didn't do, or these are the very things they didn't do. Okay, so I told you that justice is a verb. Talked about what that might mean. Mercy, it says here, is a desire to do justice and to love kindness. So in other words, to show mercy is, or to love mercy, is to have a bent towards doing that. It's like your default setting. Like you, you I mean, to have that as a default setting, you you do need a new heart, hey? Because we we could be so selfish, right? I'm so thankful for Jesus that helps us to have that that bent, that default setting. Like the first option is to rather be merciful, to rather spend than withhold. Because if you love something, if you love someone, you gravitate towards that. And so to love mercy means you gravitate towards it. It's like your default setting. But let me ask you this question. If mercy is not meeting out deserved justice, and I think that's how you say it, meeting. Is that the word? like you know dispensing justice if mercy is not dispensing deserved justice here's my question can justice and mercy actually coexist this must this hurt my brain when i thought about it first if mercy is not giving deserved justice well can justice and mercy coexist because then if you're not just well, then you're not merciful in, in one. Uh, am I making any sense here? And I want you to pin that question. Can justice and mercy coexist? Because I do think that there's an answer in Micah for us. So Micah's bringing this accusation. These are the things they have not done. These are the, these are the, these are the ways that they have failed. And how have they done that? Well, let me quickly take you through uh, a summary of how they've not done these three things. The first way is they've... They've committed idolatry, all right? So they have not walked with God. That's the, they've committed idolatry. Chapter 1, let's, verse, let's read the first nine verses. Is that okay? We can skip verse 1, actually, because we talked about that already. So let's read from verse 2 to 9. Chapter 1, verse 2 to 9. Here, you peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you. The Lord from His holy temple. Let me just stop there for a moment. This is ultimately how it will go for every human being. Okay, God's word <laughs> against yours. Nobody's going to stand with an alibi in front of God one day. And so there's just a reminder of that. Let the Lord God, even Micah, Micah saying, "Hey, let God be a witness against you." The Lord from His holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming down out of His place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. This is God. Again, saying, look, you've got these high places where all your idols are built. I'm going to come down and walk upon them. Okay, The mountains will melt under him, and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? So again, I think he's confronting the cities because the cities are the places where you should take your, your cues from. It's the example. Culture flows from cities. So is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Verse 6 Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards, and I'll pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. I mean, to uncover foundations is saying, I'm going to level you to the ground. Like if you can see the foundations of a house, the house is no longer there. Okay. <laughs> And all her carved images, there's the idolatry, shall be beaten to pieces. And all her wages shall be burned with fire. And all her idols I will lay waste. Verse 8 says, For this I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. This is, this is um, Micah you know, lamenting over these cities. I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourn like the ostriches, he says. For her wound is incurable. It has come to Judah. It has reached to the gate of my people to Jerusalem. So that's the first thing. They have stopped walking with God, idolatry. God talks about these idols, these carved images that he will shatter to pieces. The second way that they've not fulfilled Micah 6, 8 is that they lacked, obviously, justice and mercy. So let's look at some examples of that. Chapter 2 verse 1 to 3, tells us about the oppressor. It says, Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it, because it is in the power of their hand. They covet fields, they seize them, the houses, they take them away, they oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, against this family I am devising disaster, from which you cannot remove your necks, and you shall not walk haughtily. In other words, in, you're not walking in humility. You shall not walk haughtily, for it will be a time of disaster. Again, here you can see a little bit of the fact that they withheld what they could have done. It says they devised uh, you know, wickedness on their beds, and then they performed that wickedness because it is in the power of their hand. 2 verse 1. So again, they could be kind, but they weren't. They didn't love mercy. It wasn't their default setting. Their default setting was like, how can I use the influence and the power that I have to do harm instead of do good? Uh, Verse six and verse eleven in chapter two confronts the preachers. We don't have to look at that, um, but you know they say, do not preach. Thus they preach. And one should not preach of such such things. This grace will not overtake us. So basically saying they have false preachers. In verse 11, it says, If a man should go about and utter wind and lies, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would be the preacher for this people. And so again, they did, there was an injustice in terms of the things that came out of their mouths. We'll see more of that now um, in a moment. But verse uh, 8 to 10 is a, is a description of how they've become enemies of God in doing that. And, and an enemy, when an enemy goes in, when, you, uh, when you're waging war back in those days, you go into an area, a city, and you rip the rich uh, man's robe off. You take the women, you drive them out, and the young, you, you, you pluck them away from their homes. It's kind of like that's what it means to plunder. And, and in verse 8 here, yeah, God says, My people have risen up as an enemy. And then he describes it. He says, You strip the rich robe from those who pass by with no thought of war. In other words, the person didn't even think about war. They shouldn't. But their leaders, the oppressors, are actually stealing from them. And the women of my people, you drive out from their delightful houses. They they are being plundered. From their young children, you take away the vulnerable. Who can't look after themselves. You take away from them. And God is saying, you have basically risen up as an enemy. You have declared war against me in doing that. Can you see that God's bend, His default is to love mercy, to love kindness. He's he's bent towards the the oppressed and the poor. Man, it just keeps going on. Chapter 3, He takes on the civil leaders in verse 1 to 3. The heads of Jacob, as it says in verse 1. And He says this, Is it not for you to know justice? You who hate the good and love the evil, You tear the skin from off my people. And then he goes into a description of cannibalism. He's saying that if you do injustice, you're the civil leaders. You're supposed to know justice. Represent me. And you're doing something that's, I can equate to cannibalism, really. You're eating your own. That's all the way up to verse 3 in chapter 3. And then verse 5, he confronts the prophets. These are the people who should be communicating the oracles of God. And he says, Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets, who lead my people astray, who cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against him who puts nothing into their mouths. Can you, see, can you hear what he's saying? He's saying, the prophets are saying, well, if you, if, you fill, if you line my pockets, I'll prophesy kindness over you. They sound like Balaam, don't they? Hey? If, you, if you line my pockets, I'll bless you. And if you don't, if you don't uh, bless me, I'll curse you. That's, that's what the prophets are doing. And then he gives a summary uh, of it. In chapter 5, verse 9 to 12. Micah 5 is 9 to 12. I'm just giving you the headlines here of how they have done injustice. Uh, No, my bad. It's actually not that one. So, um, chapter 7. These are Micah's own words, okay, about them. Verse 2 to 4. This is what he says. So the rest is what God said. This is what Micah says. Verse 2 in chapter 7. The godly has perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood, and each hunts the other with a net. Their hands are on what is evil to do it well. So they're not just wicked. They're they're excellent at being wicked. (laughs) They do it well. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe, and the great man the evil desires of his soul; thus they weave it together. The best of them is like a briar, the most upright of them, a thorn hedge. This is this is these are Micah's own words about what they like. So they lacked justice and mercy, and so because of that, because God is just, and God's heart breaks when the 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 um, the poor and the marginalized and the the uh, vulnerable are taken advantage of. By the very people that he has commissioned to love and look after them, he must judge. He must judge, and so these these are the words of Micah to this wicked nation at this at this the state of the nation. And in verse six, uh, my bad, chapter six, verses one to five, it's like God is like, all right, let's let's create a courtroom here. Let's let's bring. nation in here with a couple of witnesses and this is how this courtroom uh, works god god basically uh, um, uh, calls in creation uh, the nation and i guess micah as well to some extent but it's 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 god the nation and creation basically and so verse one to five we're going to read together chapter six verse one to five hear what the lord says arise plead your case before the mountains and let the hills hear your voice you see god is saying come Speak up. For the Lord has an indictment against His people, and He will contend with Israel. Uh, I've read the end of verse 2 there. The first bit of verse 2 says, Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you endearing foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against His people. Verse 3. O my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? God's asking the question. And it's awkward silence and so he's saying answer me <laughs> the end of verse 3 verse 4 he says for I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery and I sent before you Moses Aram and Miriam oh my people remember what Balak king of Moab devised and what Balaam the son of Beor answered him God is saying I am I'm for you I have been kind I have allowed this to happen for too long Don't you remember what kind of a God I am? I rescued you from slavery. And when people wanted to curse you, when Balak, you know, the king of Moab, asked Balaam to curse them, what happened? He couldn't. He blessed them. This is what he's reminding them of. And what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord? So God is basically calling in a hearing. And in verse 9 of chapter 6, He is, you know, he's asking rhetorical questions to this nation. Answer me, you know. Doesn't mean they need to answer. They already stand accused. I've told you all the things that God that they are doing, you know, the prophets, the the um, the uh, uh, the leaders, and uh, I mean, I have to find that summary. I know it's somewhere. It's a certain color in my. There we go. It wasn't. It was. It was chapter three, verse. um, Nine to twelve. So, chapter three is what we're supposed to read. Um, he summarizes that. Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob, the rulers of the house of Israel. So, again, the civil leaders. You detest justice. You make the crooked. You make crooked all that is straight. You build Zion with blood, Jerusalem with iniquity. Verse eleven says, it, "Its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets." practice divination for money so there's the summary right there yet they lean on the lord and say is not the lord in the midst of us they did what jeremiah accused them of oh we have a temple i think we're okay <laughs> but they act continue to act in injustice they say no disasters shall come upon us so verse 12 therefore because of you zion shall be ploughed as a field jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins and the mountain of their house a wooden height. I want you to remember that as well. The mountain of the house. Because there's a very important line missing in that. But before we get to that, let's go to chapter 6, verse 9 to 13. Because the beginning of chapter 6, God calls a hearing with creation there. He tells them, I've been faithful to you. And now he's saying this in verse 9 to 13. The voice of the Lord cries to the city and its sound wisdom to fear your name. Hear of the rod and of him who appointed it. For me, that sounds like discipline is coming. Can I forget any longer the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked and the scant measure that is accursed? Shall I acquit the man with wicked scales and with a bag of deceitful weights? You rich men are full of violence. Your inhabitants speak lies and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. See, God is basically saying, I'm, I'm God, I'm just. Like can, can this carry on forever? No. Shall I let the you know, guys use the, your, your wickedness, your violence, your life? Shall I forget your wickedness any longer? The answer is no, which is why Micah is pointing fingers at them saying judgment is coming. So what does that judgment look like? Number one, the first thing God does is he removes his presence from that temple. It's just an outward structure. And whatever happens in there, it's just external religion. Clearly it means nothing because of the actions outside of the temple. So the first thing God does is he removes his presence from the temple. We'll look at that now. And the second thing is he removes their presence from the land. So the first thing we'll see is he removes his presence from the temple. If you remember chapter 3 at the end there of verse 12, I said, remember the mountain of the house will just be a wooded height. Normally, it's the mountain of the house of the Lord. And I know it's true because in chapter 4 verse 1, this is what it says. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established. So just before there's a beautiful promise, there's a very dire full stop. And the Lord is taken out of the statement that actually I'm going to remove my presence from the temple because the temple is the presence of the God so what's the point of just having a structure with no God in it with no God's presence in it And so that's the first bit of judgment that comes to them and in verse 6 and 7 of uh, chapter 3 let me just see if I can find this maybe it's not there I messed up all my uh, my scripture references here no it is Chapter 3, verse 6 and 7. And verse 4 in chapter 3. This is what it feels like when God's presence is removed. Verse 4 in chapter 3 says, Then they will cry to the Lord, but He will not answer them. And in verse 6, He says, Therefore it shall be night to you, without vision and darkness to you, without divination, the sun shall go down on the prophets and the day shall be black over them. The seers shall be disgraced and the diviners put to shame. They shall all cover their lips for there is no answer from God. And so God is saying, I'm removing my presence. You fail to hear the cry of those you oppress. Now I'm not gonna hear your cries. I'm out. (laughs) That's the first bit of judgment is he withdraws his presence. The second bid is he removes their presence from the land. So this is the exile that Micah prophesied, both to the northern kingdom saying Assyria is coming, but also to the southern kingdom Babylon is coming. I mean, this is profound. These things happened like in like, you know, over a span of a century. And, and this is how accurate this prophecy is. And... Uh, and so, you know, in one verse, you don't have to read it. I'll read it to you. One verse 16 says, um, as plain as daylight, really. Make yourselves bald and cut off your hair for, your, for the children of your delight. Make yourselves as bald as the eagle, for they shall go from you into exile. Okay, it's pretty clear. It's going to happen. And then, uh, and then we see in chapter 2, verse 4, right at the end, it says, an apostate. He allots our fields to an apostate. So God changes the portion of my people. In other words, this inheritance, this land he's given you, he's actually changing the boundary lines and he's going to give it to an apostate, someone who does not declare Yahweh as king. And then in 4, chapter 10, chapter, I mean 4, chapter 10, chapter 4, verse 10 is, uh, is another reminder. And I want you to listen to this one. Wryth and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labour. For now you shall go out from the city, and dwell in an open country. You shall go to Babylon. There you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. And so now, even in the judgment of God, that He first withdraws His presence from the temple, and then He withdraws their presence from the land. Even in the declaration of of uh, exile. You can see there's a glimmer of hope because he says it is from there that you will be rescued. So, pin that idea for a moment and let's just talk about this thing of being exiled. Adam and Eve, when they sinned against the Lord, they were exiled from the garden. Okay, so again, this is not, this shouldn't be news to them. And in, you know we've, we've been reading through the Old Testament, those who follow you know, the Seeing Jesus Together journal, and, and we've been reading about all the warnings that God gives to Moses and to Joshua before they go into the promised land, that if they do not follow the Lord their God, they will be exiled. And the, it's, it's getting to that point. They're they arriving, they're on the doorstep of this. And in many ways, God is giving them what they want. They want to walk away from the Lord and you know, they will literally walk away into exile from what God has given them, walk into another land. God is giving them really what they want. But as we read here, there is a rescue built into this. this. And so this is discipline, really. This is God disciplining because there's future redemption coming. This is correction. He's like, I'm going to correct your wandering hearts by sending you into exile, by giving you what you want, because you think you need it, showing you you don't really need that, and then I'm going to bring you back. Because he said, it's from there, from Babylon, that you will be rescued. So there's redemption baked in to the justice. There's mercy baked in to the justice. So I said, you know, They didn't fulfill Micah 6, 8 because of idolatry. They didn't do it because they lacked justice and mercy. And actually, the third reason is because they were proud. They were not walking in humility. So not just walking with God, but walking in humility. To be in humility is to depend upon, to say, I am less, I am weak, you are strong, I need you. That's what it means to be humble, saying I'm weak. I don't know it all. I need help. I need answers. They didn't walk in humility and dependency upon him. And so this is why God says in chapter 5, verse 10 to 15, He will strip them from all those things that they depend in, depend upon in their, in their pride. Verses 10 to 15 in chapter 5. I'm going to just highlight things so you don't, don't try and follow along with me. But he says, I'll cut off your horses from among you, and I'll destroy your chariots. That's what nations would trust in. How many horses and chariots you have so you can go to war. He said, I'll cut off your cities, of your land and your strongholds, your fortified cities where you can you know, gather and defend from or attack from. He says, I'll cut off your sorceries from your land and you shall have no more tellers of fortunes. And so they were not running to the Lord. <laughs> they were you know, divination and other tricks and trades. You know. I'll cut off your carved images, these false gods, these idols. Um, He said, you shall bow down no more to them, to the work of your hands. This is what he's saying. I'll cut off these cards, because that's a product of your hands. You built it, now you worship it, and I will teach you. I will root out your Asherah images and destroy your cities. So God is disciplining them by removing them, Therefore. And he's stripping them away from their dependency upon all these vain things. He topples them over. He destroys it. Everything that, that they've depended upon. It wasn't ultimately uh, dependent upon God. He, through exile, he destroys all these things. And he disciplines them. And I was thinking about exile and discipline a little bit, uh, you know, on my sick bed this week. And I just thought, you know, with but but my children, it's often been the case, you know, that there's been in public and overstepping of my commands. And then I've obviously, you know, especially in public, I would exile them from the presence of those people. And then, then there would be some discipline and correction that happens outside of, you know, the context. And then when I would bring them back in, I would lead them back in. They would be often, not always, but most of the times, changed individuals. There was this beautiful sort of exile, discipline, and return moment that happened that just did wonders in their life. And God is graciously doing this with his son, Israel. It's called his son. That's how he refers to his nation. He's disciplining her. And the New Testament makes those kinds of references as well. Because, why? Because God's desire is to act reparative. I think that's how you say it restorative, not only retributive. Like he, the, the, it, it keeps coming through here. And, and as you read Micah, okay, there's moments, lots of moments of like you guys are doing injustice. You're not showing mercy. This is how you're doing it. Your leaders are messing up. A lot of that judgment, exile is coming. Uh, and then you, I thought about it like this. Like sometimes you're in a car without any AC. Have you ever had that? In the middle of summer, no AC, you've got to open up the windows. And so you're on the highway and it's like, you know, sometimes it catches like a certain frequency, I don't know, and sometimes it's like, and it feels like your brain's going to explode. And then someone just for a moment, like, I just need to think, and they just, just wind up the windows. I would imagine if your car doesn't have AC, you also don't have electric windows. So, you know, it's probably why I'm doing, you know, some of you go, why is he doing this? Yes, kids, in, back in the day, we used to put our windows up and down like that. But there's like this, it's like chaos. It's just hair in your face and hair and, you know, wind in your ears. And then, I mean, seven seconds later, you're beating and you need to open it again. But it's like peace for a moment. And and, and when you read through Micah, it's like that. It's like God is like, I can't take this anymore. Judgment coming. And then God is just so kind that just, he's like, I'm going to judge you. And it's like, but I'm going to restore you. But I'm going to, I'm going to bring you back. Like he just cannot help himself. He, 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 it's not, not all judgment. It's like the, the light comes through, the, the cracks. It shines through brightly. And so in chapter 2, after a bit of accusations in verse 12 and 13, you see that first bit of light jump through, okay? He's just told them, I'm going to level your cities. I'm going to exile you. And people are oppressing. And in the middle of that, verse 12, it just changes. It's like the... The windows close and there's some silence. And you just hear, I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture. Verse 13, he who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate going out by it. Their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. And so there's like this glimpse of a shepherd king that will lead them back. And in in chapter 4, verse 1 to 7, so you have chapter 3 again. The rulers and the prophets are denounced. But then chapter 4 starts off with this, verse 1. We're going to read all the way from uh, verse 1 to 7. It shall come to pass in the latter days, okay, so this is after all this stuff, that the mountain of the house of the Lord, now this is the verse straight after uh, chapter 3 ends, where the mountain of the house is just a wooden height. So just as God's saying, I'm getting out of this temple, he's like, but i have just got to tell them I'm coming back and it's going to be glorious. And so then chapter 4 kicks off. I will establish you know, my house as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills. So in other words, all your idle hills, get nothing compared to my, my presence. And peoples shall flow to it, and many nations shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, That he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. That is amazing language. Out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Let's keep reading. He shall judge between many peoples. And he shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. And so Micah is prophesying not only about uh, something that might be uh, uh, imminent for them, but he's also talking about the end, the consummation. Now, I mean, we know that this hasn't happened. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation. We all know that's not true, hey? We all know what's going on with Russia and Ukraine. And there's so many other parts of the world that doesn't necessarily get the airtime on news, on the news that that might get. But this is what's coming. This is what's coming. And it shall be a, a product of the house of the Lord being established forever. You know, verse, verse five, or actually end of, end of verse four, it says, no one shall make them afraid anymore. Can you imagine that? No fear. Verse 6 says, In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. And the lame I will make the remnant and those who were cast off a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. You see, these guys, this nation, they have suffered under a line of failed kings. So many just king after king after king after king so much so i mean they can only really double click to like david you know it's like that's the that's the sort of you know the, the og <laughs> that's, that's 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 all they can do they've just had lines and lines of failed kings and as a result they've kept wandering from the lord what do wandering people need what do wandering sheep need a shepherd And that's why that first promise in chapter 2 of a shepherd king coming. And this is why David is so significant when it talks about the the, the line of David, that the king promised in his line. That's why it's so significant because David was a shepherd king. He was not even someone who who looked for kingship. He walked humbly with his God. Not like, hey, where's where's the corporate ladder? One day I want to sit on that throne. He was shocked and surprised that he was chosen. He wasn't even on the list. And he was a shepherd. He knew what it is to tend and to care and to lead wandering. And and that's why I think it's in that line. That's why it's so significant that he's the benchmark for a king that was to come. And that is why chapter 5, verse 2 to 5, just shines through so amazingly. And Micah here is speaking of something that you and I know took place. Let's read this together. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathath, I think that's how you say it. Which is just the region that Bethlehem was in. Who are too little to be among the clans of Judah? From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in all Israel. Whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. So maybe that is a double click to from my promise to David that there will be someone ruling in your line, but also ancient of days. They're saying that you know the word of God was present in the beginning. Jesus creating. From ancient of days, this this king will come out of Bethlehem. This tiny little town that everybody overlooks. That from something insignificant, greatness is going to come. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. Verse 4. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. That is incredible. That is incredible. You see, wandering people need a shepherd. And yes, God gave them what they want. They, they, he let them walk away from him, and then they literally walked away into exile but then a shepherd is going to come bring them back. He's going to come bring them back. Chapter 6, verse 6 to 7 are the preceding verses to the verse that we read. What does the Lord require? You know, He's told you what He wants of you. Verse 6 and 7, the two verses before, is the question is asked again. It says this, With what shall I come before the Lord? Or bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings? With calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? With ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression? The fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? And then verse 8 says, Now he has told you what he wants. Do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. This is incredible, and there are incremental numbers here to prove a point. Shall I, you know, come with a thousand rams or ten thousand rivers of oil? He's trying to make a point. He's like, no, none of those things actually matter, right? It's not enough. And then another promise breaks through in chapter seven, verse eighteen to twenty. It says this: Who is a God like you? Let me just make sure I've got that right. Yeah. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob, steadfast love to Abraham, As you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. In other words, you will keep your promise that you made. How can that be true? How can that promise be true? Chapter 7, verse 8 to 10 changes gear a little bit and and gives a picture of Israel as a repentant kind of prisoner of war. And in verse 9, I mean, let's read verse 8 to 10, but in verse 9 it's beautiful because it will come into focus now. You know, Israel basically, Micah is is hoping they would get to that place in exile where they say, Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon his vindication. Then my enemy will see and shame will cover her. Who said to me, Where is the Lord your God? Verse 9 is the key. I will bear the indignation of the Lord. We know that Jesus bore our indignation because I have sinned against him. And so a great exchange took place. Jesus bore the indignation of the Lord because I, you, and me have sinned against him. And he pleads my cause. Jesus because the father executed judgment on Jesus. And you see I want you see look at verse 9 just as it's written there. And I'm going to replace it with what ultimately happened with why verses 18 to 20 can be true in chapter 7. It's because Jesus bore the indignation of the Lord because you and I have sinned against him. And Jesus pleads our cause because the father executed judgment on him for you and me God made this that is how my friends that is how because in chapter 6 verse 16 God is saying uh, to them you know um, you will bear the scorn of my people when he talks about destroying the wicked and we know that Jesus bore the scorn of all people upon that cross that is why Micah can declare at the end of his oracle who is a God like you Pardoning iniquity. You pass over transgression. How can pa- God pass over your injustice, not walking humbly and not doing justice and not loving mercy? Because He didn't pass over Jesus, because He was the Lamb that was slain in our place. That's why His anger will not last forever. That's why He can have compassion on us and tread our iniquities underfoot because it happened on the cross and He can cast our sins into the depths of the sea of what Jesus has done for us. That's how justice and mercy can go together. That's why Romans 3 verse 26, it talks about God being just and the one who justifies. Because when he shows mercy to us, he in the same moment judges our sin. So in the same moment we receive grace and mercy, we get what we don't deserve and we don't get what we deserve. <laughs> that is the only way justice and mercy can live together is because of Jesus on the cross, because of the gospel. It's the only way we can make sense of a book like Micah, of an instruction like chapter six, verse eight, is to love mercy and to do justice. Because you and I can do justice and and you know and fight for, for, for to uh, to uh, you know to to come down on the wicked because of oppressing the poor. But if the, when the wicked repents. We can tap away and show their mercy. why? Because their wickedness was paid for by Jesus on the cross. <laughs> it's the only way where justice and mercy can work alongside each other. Without the cross, I do not know how the world can do that. Do not know how you could separate that, but we have a king, a shepherd king, on a cross, who now promises to walk with us. And that's the increasingly crazy thing is Jesus left the throne of heaven and he. You know, he left his, his home, came to us, who were, you know, we are, we are described as exiles right now. And, and he walked with us so that we could walk with him, so we could be followers of him. That's shepherd king. And now we find ourselves described by books like First and second Peter, as exiles, but no longer as people being disciplined, we are exiles as disciples, as followers of Jesus. We, we find ourselves in a world that is not our home, but we can live here doing justice and showing mercy and loving mercy, being citizens of our kingdom, walking with Jesus, our shepherd king, forgiven and free, extending mercy and. And, uh, and acting out justice. And that is what I think is Micah, Micah is all about. <laughs> Let me pray for you, and then when I'm done, we're going to do our commission together. And Let's close our eyes.